Thanks, Vanessa. Good morning, Woodland Hills. How are y'all doing? It's good to be here and worshiping with you. Uh, you know, I, I went on that Cambodia missions trip, uh, oh, eight, nine years ago, I guess it was, and, and I, uh, it, it was life transforming. It was powerful. I, you know, Cambodia is a third world country to start with, and most of the ministry that these folks will be doing are with the Vietnamese in Cambodia. Uh, they're immigrants there, and so they have no rights to any property or anything. So they're at the bottom of the totem pole, uh, and the totem pole itself is uh, in a third world country. And the poverty is just mind-boggling. Um, so it's a really important, beautiful kingdom ministry that these folks will be doing. So I encourage you to stop by there and, and uh, talk with them and keep them in prayer. It's, it's a cool thing to be part of. And I am so sick of the snow, it's not funny. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I got out this morning and what again? I didn't know it was going to snow again. Uh, I've, uh, fortunately I got a little snow duster plow thing, but I've been using it so much. It's just, I'm just sick of it. Sick of it. But maybe part of the problem is that I just got, uh, Shelly and I got a chance to get away. Oh, thanks to, to Jonathan Martin and Abraham Johnson for their outstanding job of preaching the last two weeks. Really appreciate them. It was great. And Shelly and I, one thing we found is, is, um, in our marriage that we need every year, have a, a two or three day getaway where we kind of just do another honeymoon, uh, recharge the batteries and just have time to be together with no distractions or anything. And th- this was our time to do that. And it was just, uh, we, it was just great. It was just great. We went to Las Vegas. <laughs> and the, there's a reason why they call that Sin City. Oh my gosh, I'd never been there before. Mind-blowing, but I'm, if I talk about it, I'll start preaching, so I'm not going to go there. But we just had a nice time, saw uh, the Circus Soleil, uh, Michael Jackson show, which was fantastic, and he just had a relaxing time, but, but it's good to be back, despite the snow. <laughs> and Lord, let the summer come quickly. So whenever we are not in uh, a series, we come back to the book of Colossians, uh, or some book of the Bible, and this season we're in Colossians. And today we are all the way up to chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Uh, these are passages that deal with marriage, marriage, and um, I assure you that if, if you're not married, you'll, you'll find principles here that apply to uh, your life as much as any married person's life, so hang in there w- w- with me on this. Um, and we're entitling this message, Who's the Boss? Because that's what this passage is addressing. Now, if you are visiting here from a more traditional evangelical background, I just encourage you to hear me out on this, all right? Hear me out on this. This may be new. You haven't heard it before, or maybe you have heard parts of it, but you haven't heard me say it before, so hear me out on this. All right. Here's what it says in Colossians 3. Uh, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That's all you need to know. Have a good day. God bless. (laughs) As is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. At this point, in the last service, some lady actually muttered in volume of that, most of us could hear, oh no, <laughs> oh no, here we go. Uh, and I imagine that there are right now some women in this auditorium or listening through podcasts who maybe are a little nervous, maybe even a little irate. Maybe you've had these verses used in ways that have not been necessarily godly, push you down and maybe degrade you in certain ways. It is is puzzling. I mean, on the one hand, it's understandable why someone would feel nervous or irate because, you know, Paul says to the husbands, you know, don't be harsh with your wives. It almost has the connotation of as you, you know, tell them what to do and lord over them, be gentle, you know, as you give them the instructions. Um, 
And then the wives are just told to submit. They're not even said to love the husbands. The husband's supposed to love the, the wives, but the, the only duty is to submit. And, and you can be asked the question, is he talking about wives or children here? I mean, it, it has a, a certain feel to it that, that doesn't resonate well with a lot of uh, people's sensibilities today, and we've got to deal with this. But not only is the passage puzzling, uh, some of us have found that applying passages like this, wives submit to your husbands, it can be disastrous for your marriage. You know, Shelly and I came out of a real strict fundamentalist Pentecostal background. We were married in this real strict fundamentalist church. And um, we even went to these Bill Gothard seminars. I mean, you remember that in the 70s, the Bill Gothard seminars? Yes, very conservative. And uh, they're really big on male headship. Man, this was important. Uh, not only to be biblical, but you know, society hung in the balance on this. Men stepping up and playing their leadership roles. And most importantly, Bill Gothard stressed that uh, the man's supposed to be the head of the household, and that means that you are to control all the finances, because whoever controls the finances controls all the real power in the family. So this is very important that men control all the finances. So Shelly and I get married, and we move out east right away. I'm attending seminary, and I'm in charge of the finances. And this is not good news. <laughs> I am, you know, as a student, I'm in, not just as a student, I've always lived my life like this. My head's in the clouds. I'm thinking about Paul Tillich or Karl Barth or, you know, atonement theories or whatever. And I don't think about money. I don't care about money. I don't, it doesn't, I, it's never got my attention. I, and I lose bills. I, I lose everything. I don't have an organizational neuron in my brain. It's just one of the areas that I'm deficient on. And so, um, uh, this isn't going well. Shelly, on the other hand, is very organized. And in contrast to me, she's very responsible and, uh, and does think about money. And so the first month or, uh, month or two of our marriage was a matter of, of uh, her asking me, how are we doing financially? Are we making ends meet? Are we paying our bills? And I don't even know where the bills are. I put them somewhere. I can't find them. <laughs> so I always find myself saying, I don't know. I don't know. So she get worried and ask more intensely, you know, how are we doing? And then I'd begin to get irritated because she's always asking me these questions. Uh, and it was just not going well. In one of my more brain-dead moments as a compartmentalizing male, I actually suggested, uh, how about we, uh, instead of talking about this all the time, why don't we just reserve uh, to talk about financial problems and all of our marriage problems. Uh, let's, let's talk about them between 9 and 11 on Wednesday mornings. I will set aside that time, and then we don't have to talk about them for the rest of the week. Sounds like a brilliant idea. She didn't think so. She thought that was pretty dumb, actually. It didn't go well. And in time, about two months into this, it finally, as usually happens, reality trumps theory. Uh, the, the necessities of reality, you know, just send the theories out the door. And so Shelley took over the finances and uh, organizing all of that. And, um, and I felt like, gosh, I must not be a real man or I must not be biblical or whatever. But what I felt most was relief because I did not want to be worrying about the bills. I just can't. I just don't, don't do that well. Um, and it, real, reality ended up winning. But it caused a lot of tension in our marriage for a good bit of time. I found that the less my marriage has conformed to the expectations that Christian culture has put on it, the better we do. Uh, now maybe this is me, but, but uh, for 34, over 34 years now, we've had a very functional marriage where uh, I asked Shelly, you know, can I afford this? You know, can I, I get an allowance, honey, can I have a couple dollars? Uh, and that's fine. I'm not threatened by that anymore. It's just that she, I trust her to be in charge of that because she's good at it and I'm not. Uh, and so, but now, does that mean that we're on the will of God? Because this verse and other verses seem to say that the woman should be submitting 
and I should be the boss, and blah, 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 blah. So what do we do with this? What's up with this passage? Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that my core conviction is that all of our thinking about God and ourselves and the Bible and everything else should be centered on the cross. Because the cross is the definitive, most perfect, fullest revelation of God's character and will that we have. What we find on the cross is that God is a God who enters into solidarity with us wherever we are at. A God who dives into our, not only our fallen humanity, but our sin and the, and, and, and our, our hell. And he takes it upon himself and he bears that sin. That's what the cross is all about. A God who, he's not a God who says, here's my ideal and either you meet that ideal or be gone with you. Because if that was the case, we'd all be gone. He's a God who says, here's my ideal. But when you fall short of that ideal, I'll come down to where you're at, and I'll enter into your situation, and I'll love you towards that ideal. He's a God who comes down. He, he, he holds up his ideal, but he comes down to our real. Holds up his ideal, but then comes down to our, uh, our real, and, and then moves us in the direction of the ideal. In some ways, you can think of God as a missionary. Well, a missionary, when you go to a foreign tribe... You can't just bulldoze in there and say, hey, here's how it's going to be, folks. Uh, you got to stop treating women that way. you got to stop treating these folks this way. you got to stop the practice of female circumcision. you got to stop uh, not caring for these vulnerable people. You can't just bulldoze into a culture and do that. No, you, you, you're, you're, you're nobody. You've got to earn the right to be heard. You've got to earn the right to be trusted. And so what a missionary, a good missionary does anyways, is you enter into the culture. You love the people where they're at. You, you uh, to adopt their culture. Even the parts of it that you don't agree with, in that sense you bear their sin and take on the appearance of one who condones that culture, even though you don't, but you're doing it out of love so that eventually you'll, you'll, you'll win their trust and their confidence and you can begin to influence them with the gospel and then walk with them towards the ideal. But it doesn't take place overnight. It takes a lot of time and energy and, 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 and a whole lot of love. This is what God does throughout the Bible. Uh, he treats his, his people Israel the way he treats all of humanity on the cross. He's always been the cruciform God. He didn't start being Christ-like when he died on the cross. He's always been this way, and he always exemplifies this character. He's always willing to enter into solidarity with people where they're at. And so we find throughout the history of Israel, God says, here's my ideal. But when you fall short of that ideal, you're still my covenant people. I, I still am in relationship with you. And so he comes down to their level. He bends the rules sometimes in order to meet them where they're at, the best possible thing they can do, and then gradually move them towards that ideal. And so, for example, we find the Lord saying, here's my ideal for marriage. I want, I want a man and woman to live together forever. They're one flesh forever. That's his ideal. But in the fallen world, sometimes that just doesn't happen. And so there's a point at which he allows for divorce. And he puts some loving rules around it. It's going to happen anyways. So rather than stay up here towards his ideal and say and condemn us for getting divorces, he says, okay, let's come down here and do the best we can with that. And he puts some loving rules around it, mainly rules that protect the women in, in, in this case. And a little later on, uh, though monogamy is his ideal, he allows for polygamy. Because all these guys are getting killed in warfare, and uh, women are left out on the streets, and, and, and it's better to have polygamy than it is to have starving women and children. And so he allows for polygamy. And then later on, he bends the rules even further, and he allows for these concubines, who are not even married, but they're allowed to bear children from men, because at least that affords them some protection. This is a guy who enters into solidarity with his people where they're at. And he takes, he bears their sin and takes on an appearance of a God who condones that. There are passages that make it sound like God's all in favor of polygamy. He says, I, David, I've blessed you with all these wives. How could you go after Bathsheba? And, and, and whatnot. But we know that his ideal was never that. This is why we find a lot of rather, rather barbaric laws in the Old Testament. Um, you read the book of Leviticus. 
And some of, some of that, you know, I'm sure some of you had experience. You read that and you ask the question, how can that possibly be God's word? Now, I believe it is on the authority of Jesus, but some of it is rather strange. So if your kid is, is insubordinate or tries to strike you, you stone him to death. You stone him to death. Uh, or or it, when a woman is going through her monthly time, she has to wear a special ribbon. And if she's coming in the vicinity of people, she has to shout out, unclean, unclean, because if anyone touches her, they're contaminated. Now, what's up with that? Is, does God really think that the woman is unclean when she's having her period? Uh, does God really think that you should stone your kids when they're, they're uh, uh, being rebellious? See, I, this, these kind of things don't reflect, they're outrageous to us, but they weren't outrageous to the people of the time. In fact, the laws of the Old Testament generally improve upon what you find in the surrounding cultures. They don't reflect God's will and character. They rather reflect the best that God could do with these people at this time. As God steps down and enters into their reality, he walks with them to slowly move towards that ideal. He's, he's basically treating his people, Israel, the way he treats all of humanity on the cross. He bears their sin and walks with them. And so for us, as we read the Bible, we've got to know that it's not the... When we come across these kind of strange and even barbaric laws, the laws themselves don't reflect the true character and will of God. That's reflected on the cross. But rather, what reflects the true character and will of God is the fact that God would bend that far to stay in relationship with people. He would bend the rules that far. He shows he's a God of mercy and grace, that he doesn't stick up here with his ideal and just condemn us for falling short. He rather enters into solidarity with Israel and enters into solidarity with us, where we're at, to say, what's the best you can do, and then walks with us towards that ideal. And what it means, folks, is that when we read the Bible, we, we can't just assume that because it's in the Bible, it's something that is, is God's will for us. Uh, you know, there's some fundamentalists who will say, in fact, a lot of fundamentalists will say, you know, I believe every word of the Bible. I'm not a picker and chooser. No, I believe every word is the word of God. And they'll quote some verse, and usually it's when they want to justify hating somebody or praying a vengeance prayer against the president or something. I believe the whole Bible, not a picker and chooser. Uh, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. It's that simple. But see, it's not that simple. Because much of the Bible doesn't reflect God's will and character. It reflects God accommodating human sin. It reflects God bending the rules to, 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 to meet us where we're at. Uh, and, and, and so you, you can't assume that that's God's permanent will for you. No, it's, it's rather God accommodating the sin of the people at the time. And at some level, everybody knows this. Uh, the folks who say, I, I take every word, they're kidding themselves. I have yet to meet a, a fundamentalist who will stone their child if, he, if he's rebellious. Or a fundamentalist who makes their wife wear a ribbon to tell the world that she's having her period. I haven't found it yet. Oh, you're a picker and chooser. <laughs> you don't believe the whole Bible. Or... <laughs> ask him, are you wearing any wool and cotton together? Because the Old Testament forbids that. In fact, it's an abomination to the Lord. You should get stoned. Not that kind of stoned. I mean, get rocked. <laughs> you see, these kind of rules are, these kind of rules, they don't reflect God's will and character for us. They reflect what God accommodated at the time. And so with that in mind, we can now turn to Colossians chapter 3. All right, that's the context. You know, Jesus, when he was asked about divorce, various groups had different opinions on what was the righteous reasons you could divorce your wives. And they wanted to, they wanted to ask, get Jesus' opinion on this, mainly to, so he would, that would divide the crowds, because whatever opinion he had, the majority would be against it, or at least a crowd, part of the crowd would be against it. So they asked him, what, what do you think about this? What's the righteous reasons to divorce your wife? Notice that no one's asking the question, what's the righteous reason for the wife to divorce the husband, because wives at this time had no say-so. They were stuck with whatever they got. Although the husbands had a little more choice in this. And Jesus said to them, 
Have you not read in the beginning? In the beginning, uh, God said they shall be one flesh and what God has joined together should never be torn asunder. And it was only because of the hardness of your hearts that God allowed for divorce. And what he's saying here is this. You're asking the wrong question. You're taking this divorce accommodation, which was never God's will, uh, but you, he, he accommodated it, and you're taking that as though it was actually God's will for you. And now you're feeling self-righteous if you divorce your wives for the right reasons. But if you go to the beginning and measure yourself against what God said in the beginning, before the fall, and before any divorce, you'll find that none of you have got grounds for feeling self-righteous. And that's his whole point here. He knows divorce is going to take place, but you can't feel righteous about it because it's a break from God's ideal. He takes them back to the beginning, before the fall. And so as we're talking about marriage, let's go back to the beginning, before the fall. And say, what was God's ideal for marriage? And I'm going to now share with you four reasons, four things that indicate to me that God's ideal prior to the fall was for a husband and wife to be, in every sense of the term, equal partners together, right? Here's the four things I find in Genesis 1 and 2 that indicate this. First of all, Genesis 2.18. Author says, The Lord said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that word helper is interesting. There's a long tradition in the church. And remember, the ones who are doing theologizing in this long tradition of the church are men. The tradition is created by men and sustained and enforced by men. And this tradition said that that word ezer means something like servant. God created a servant for Adam or an assistant to Adam, but it was a subordinate. Now, the thing is, is that as old as that tradition is, that's not what the word implies. Ezer usually applies to something that's absolutely necessary for someone, and it's most frequently applied to God. God is our helper. In fact, it's accompanied, it's usually, it goes along with God is our helper and our protector, or God is our helper and provider, or God is our helper and our savior. And unless you want to say that God is subordinate to us, you can't say that that term implies any kind of subordination when it's applied to Eve. No, what God has in mind here is rather a perfect complementary partner who would be with Adam and equal in every sense. It implies a sense of absolute equality. Second thing is this. We read in Genesis 2.23 that when, when Eve is created, Adam says, Ah, this is now, finally at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, and that has a connotation of saying, this is me in a different form. This is exactly like me. In contrast to all those animals that I named, this is me in, in, in a different version. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And it implies absolute equality. And this is why when the husband and wife come together, they create one flesh. There's almost like a kind of reunion. Eve is created out of Adam, and is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And when they come together, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and all that, it creates a new reality, a one flesh reality, that is in a sense a reunion, like a one person. They have their individual characters, but there's one new kind of person here. And that all implies an absolute equality. There's no kind of subordination going on here. This is a, a new person, a new unit uh, that's brought together by these two who are different versions of, the, uh, of, of, of one another. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then we read this in Genesis uh, chapter 1. God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule, they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the uh, sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Note here that it's the image of God is applied equally to males and females. God made humankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. Now, in an ancient Near Eastern context, this is absolutely radical. Because as is true of most cultures in this fallen world, um, in the ancient Near East, including ancient Israel, men held all the power. They were not equal with women. Women regarded as property. They were bought and sold and, and whatnot. And so for this author to say that before the fall, men and women equally reflected the image of God is radical. And that implies absolute equality. Unless you want to say that God is subordinate to God somehow, if you reflect the image of God, you're like everyone else who reflects the image of God. There's absolute equality there. Which leads to my fourth point, and that is this. Notice that God gave the instruction to rule the earth and the animal kingdom to both the man and the woman. They will rule over the earth and the animal kingdom. The only rule that is mentioned in this passage is the rule over the earth and the animal kingdom. God did not say that Adam will rule over Eve, and then you're going to rule over the earth and animal kingdom, but rather the male and female as equal partners bearing the image of God, they will together extend God's loving lordship to the earth and the animal kingdom, which was and still is our first mandate, to reflect God's loving character to, to, the, to the rest of creation. But all of this, folks, implies absolute equality. There's no subordinationism that's going on prior to the fall. So where does subordinationism, subordinationism or submission come from? Well, it comes from the same event that brought about every other thing that's wrong with the world, and that is the fall. That is the fall. When, when, when Adam and Eve rebel, God shows up, and he announces all these different curses that are now going to come upon the world as we've opened the floodgates to the principalities and powers to come down here and start to screw up everything. Um, he lists these curses, and one of the curses he announces to Eve, and he says this, Your desire will be towards your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, in the long tradition of church history, created by men, originated by men, sustained by men, and enforced by men, they interpreted this desire to be um, one of two things. Either Eve is to sexually desire the man. Sounds like men reasoning, doesn't it? Oh, here's what it means. They desire us. They want us bad. No doubt, no doubt. Or it could mean that the desire should be to serve the man. Haven't you found that women just generally desire to serve the man? So that's how they interpreted this. And they interpreted this to be a prescription for marriage. This is God's prescription for marriage, what God wants. This is the ideal that marriages in the kingdom are to strive for. Now, it was mainly men doing theologizing throughout all of church history until the last 60, 70 years. And then the doors of education began to be opened up to women who began to learn Hebrew and begin to read the Bible on their own. And they had a slightly different way of looking at things and saw things that had seemed to have been missed throughout much of church history. In the early 60s, there was a Hebrew scholar, a female Hebrew scholar, who read this passage and noticed something. So far as I know, it was for the first time. And she published an article on it, and it was this. that In the Hebrew of this passage, it's not in the prescriptive mode or an imperative mode, it's rather in the indicative mode, or descriptive mode. And what that means is this. The Lord isn't here stating what he wants marriage to be. He's simply stating the way marriage, unfortunately, will be because of the fall. Because of the fall, it's going to be this way. 
He no more wills this than he wills any other curses. That was never supposed to be part of creation. But as a result of this fall, this rebellion, now marriage is going to be this. And then she, she noticed that that word desire, it doesn't have the connotation of desire to serve or desire sexually. It's used in the next chapter in Genesis 4 when God says to Abel that sin is crouching at the door and desires to control you. And that word desire has a connotation of to manipulate in order to control. And she noticed that the word to rule over applied to the man in this passage has the connotation of tyrannize. And so what she saw, and I think she's absolutely right about this, is that this isn't God holding up a loving, wonderful ideal that reflects his will, as though God wants this manipulation and tyranny to go on. Rather, this is the Lord saying this, this beautiful thing that I created, where you would be equal partners who would carry out my loving will on earth as it is in heaven, uh, because of the fall, it will now be reduced to a power struggle, where the woman's going to be trying to manipulate the man to get her way, but the man, presumably by, uh, just by force of his strength, is going to end up tyrannizing the woman. She tries to manipulate him, and he ends up tyrannizing uh, her. And, and so he's announcing the disaster that's going to happen to marriage because of this fall. And sadly, history is proving this to be very true. This is how most marriages throughout history have tended to look like. The man is in charge and, 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 and whatever, but the woman, because she's not going to try to fight him physically, she tries to connive and, and get her will in other ways. But this isn't the kind of marriage that we're to be striving for. This isn't God's beautiful ideal for the kingdom. This is rather a fallen model of, of marriage that mar- kingdom marriages should be striving against. This is not what we should be aspired for. It should be the very thing we're running from to have a different kind of marriage. And the kind of marriages we should have, well, it's the same kind of relationships we should have with everybody. And they're ones that look like the humble, gentle servant Jesus Christ. Uh, they're, they're marriages that move in the opposite direction of this trying to get one up on everybody. The rather marriages and all of our relationships should be about coming under people and washing the feet of people and being servants of one another. Not in a coerced way, but in a voluntary loving way. And we find this model of all relationships all over the place in the New Testament. Here's, here's one example. It's Philippians chapter 2. Probably the, uh, the clearest example. Where Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, trying to get your way. Or out of vain conceit, thinking that you've got the right to try to get it your way. Rather, in, you, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In all your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. All your relationships, that would include marriage. Have this mindset. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross." Let all your relationships have this attitude, have this mindset in, in every person you relate to. The world is governed by, on the whole, people operating out of their selfish ambition and vain conceit, where they value themselves above others. Me first. I want to get my way. The general thinking of the fallen world has been that my ideas are the superior ideas, and, and I, I, it would do the world good for me to impose my ideas on everybody else. That's what all the political wars are about. The general way the fallen world operates is that you look out for number one, and you fight for it, and you manipulate for it, and you use whatever advantages you have to try to get your will done. Because it's the better will, you assume. Well, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, he's up in heaven. He could have done that. He could have, he's enjoying the prerogatives of being the Son of God, equal with God, the bliss of heaven. 
He could have looked down on this fallen humanity and said, these pathetic human beings, what an inconvenience. I give all these blessings and all they do is squander it. Miserable little worms. Should just destroy them. Why should I be inconvenienced? I'm up here enjoying the bliss of heaven. And I deserve it because I'm the son of God. He could have done that. But he didn't. Instead, he set aside. He put our interests, as fallen as they were, above his own. He valued us above himself. He set aside all of his privileges, all of his advantages, all of his benefits, all of his blessings. And he humbled himself. He came under us, humbled himself, and laid down his life on our behalf. Why? Because that's what we needed him to do, and he was willing to do it. And then Paul says, let all of your relationships be characterized by this kind of humility. Where whatever advantages you've got, because the culture will let you be in charge, whatever advantages you got, because you're smarter than others, or you're, 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 you're better at this or that than other people, whatever advantages you have, you don't use them to your own advantage. Rather, you use them for the benefit of others. And you live a life of a servant coming under others. You see, in the kingdom, all of our relationships should be moving in the exact opposite direction of the fall. And the fall, everyone's trying to get one up on one another. Oh, yeah? Well, what about this? Oh, yeah, I'll get my way. I'll, I'll, I'll manipulate. I'll overpower. I'll manipulate. So we're going like this. Climbing one another. That's why it's a world full of violence. But in the kingdom, our job is to be going the other way. Coming under. Uh, servant. Washing feet. Imitating Jesus in all things. And it applies to everything. Amen. Paul says this to everybody. This is, this is the way, this, to whether you're married or not, whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter. This is to characterize all of your relationships, and therefore it applies to marriage. In fact, Paul applies it to marriage in Ephesians 5. Look at this. In Ephesians 5, he starts off by saying, basically what he said in Philippians 2. He says, follow God's example. In the Greek, it's imitate God. Imitate Him. Do exactly what you see Him doing. And then he says, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. If you're imitating God, you'll be walking in the way of love, living in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He says this to everybody, without qualification, in all your relationships. Live this way. There's no off button on this one. Love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. The kind of humility that Christ demonstrated towards you, you demonstrate towards others. The way Christ used his advantages uh, to benefit you, so also you use whatever advantages you have to benefit others. The way that Christ was not seeking selfish ambition, so also we are not to seek selfish ambition. And it applies to every relationship. There's no off button on this. But then Paul applies it to marriage a little bit later on. Starting in verse 21, he says this, To husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Everyone say, one another. another. That's wild. In the first century, this is wild. It's not surprising to say to the woman, to the wives, because they're already submitted. The culture makes them submit. So it's not surprising he does that. But he says to the man, in first century culture, with very few exceptions, men hold all the cards, have all the power, have all the authority, all the say-so. Culture affords them that advantage. And they use it. Man, they, no, they don't answer to anybody. You know, that's, Paul says to them, submit to your wife. And wife, submit to your husband. Just shimmying down. Move on the opposite direction of the fall. Don't be doing this thing, be doing this thing. Don't be doing the one over dance, be doing the come under dance. How do you like that? <laughs> Submit to one another. Okay? Shimmy downward. And now what Paul's going to do, and it's brilliant, is he's going to uh, use the analogy of Christ in the church to flesh out what this mutual submission looks like. And in this model, it, it, the man has all the power, all the authority, holds all the cards, so he's in the position that Christ was. And the woman has no authority, has no power, no say-so. And so she's in the position that the church was in. While we were helpless and had nothing to say, Jesus died for us, okay? So he's going to use this analogy to subvert the whole social system of marriage in the first century. And so in the next verse, 
He says, wives, he's talking about this mutual submission. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, you might ask the question, why does Paul repeat submission there? Why say, he just said, submit to one another, so why does he tell the wife specifically to submit? And I've had people say to me, well, you see, yeah, in a sense, in a sense, the husband and wife are supposed to submit to one another, but really the wife is especially supposed to submit, which means there's not mutual submission. You know, she, she, she ends up being the only one who submits. What you got to know is this. In the Greek, that second submit yourself in this verse is not there. It's not in the original. Rather, Paul just says, wives as unto the Lord. So what he's saying, if you put those two verses together, is this. Uh, husbands and wives, submit yourself to one another out of reverence to Christ. And now, wives, you do this as unto the Lord. He's not at all qualifying the mutual submission in this. Rather, everything that follows verse 21 is simply fleshing out what this mutual submission looks like to people who have power and to those who don't. It looks like Christ in the church. That's what Paul's getting at here. And so he, the new part that he tells wives is, you do it as unto the Lord. They were already doing it as unto the culture. They were doing it because they were forced to. They were doing it because they had no other alternative. But Paul says, in a kingdom marriage, now that submission is to be done as unto the Lord, which means you do it freely. You do it, you, you do it, you do it not, not because you're living in fear or intimidation, but because you're in love, the way the church submits to Christ. All right? That's, how, that's what it looks like for a person without power to mutually submit. You do it the way the church does. And now, here's what he says uh, to the, the, the husband, as well as the wife. He goes on to say this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Okay, we got that. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's what's going on. First century, man has all the cards, all the authority, all the power, all the say-so. He's in the position of Christ. He is the head. He is the boss. The question is, how are you going to use that advantage that the culture has given to you? Are you going to do the way the culture does, where you just lord over your, your wife? Um, or are you going to use it the way that, that Christ does? Are you going to use it for selfish ambition so you get to always get your way? Or are you going to do it the way that Christ does? And what Paul says is, yeah, you're the head. You're the head, just as Christ is the head of the church. You're the boss. Well, yeah, we all know that. But use that now the way Christ did. And Christ laid down his life for his bride while she was yet lost and, 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 and in sin. In fact, Paul goes on to say in this passage, do it, uh, lay down your life as Christ did to make the church holy and blameless. In other words, even when she's not holy and full of blame, your job is to lay down your life for her. You See, in, in a first century context... The only one who can initiate bringing the kingdom into a marriage is the man, because he's got all the power. The wife is already submitting. So if you're going to have a new kind of thing going on, you got to talk to the one who's got the power to do something with it. They say, husbands, now it's your job. Since you have all the power, you initiate this submission. You're both going to submit to one another. But husbands, since you have the power, you submit first. You lay down your life. And then wife, you're in the position of the bride. So now you respond to him the way that the church does to Christ. Uh, out of, uh, seeing his character, seeing his love, you now submit to him. And then this goes on. The shimmy goes downward. Lay down your life. She submits. He submits. She submits. Without doing the nice shimmy dance downward, the shimmy dance of, 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 of humility and Christ-like cruciform love. Praise God. Instead of the shimmy of, who's going to give you boss? You see, that's what kingdom marriages should look like. That's what all of our relationships should look like. It's not about uh, who's boss or who's in charge or who gets to have their way. 
It's rather about uh, how do we wash each other's feet? How do we come under one another? How do we? Uh, it's never about power over. It's always about power under. Winning the love of another by demonstrating this servant character towards them. Putting the, he's simply saying what he said in Philippians 2. In marriages, have the attitude that Christ had, who, who didn't use his advantage to himself, but rather held the interests of the other uh, ahead of his own. Be Christ-like to one another in marriage. Uh, just be in marriage the way we're supposed to be in all of our relationships, and you'll have yourself a kingdom marriage. But in that case, you won't be saying, who gets the tie-breaking vote? Who's the boss? Who gets to finally lord over one another? I have people who, even here within this church, who sometimes will say, well, look, I, I, I don't agree with you, Greg. I, I think that the way Paul talks about headship, I think that that's a, a timeless teaching. Uh, that, that's a permanent part of the, of the Word of God. And my response is to say, fine, I'm okay with that. Just remember that you were talking about a kingdom head, not a pagan head. Uh, I, being a kingdom head, if the man wants to be head of the household, wonderful. But what that means is you initiate coming under. You're both going to submit, but you have to initiate it. So you want to be head of the household, wonderful. You take responsibility. Whenever there's a fight, you ask for forgiveness first. And whenever you're, there's a gridlock, you can't agree on something, you defer to your wife first. And whenever you find that the marriage is lacking passion, you take responsibility first to infuse it with passion. Ah, there's not a lot of wives I know that would disagree with that one. Okay, If you want to take that responsibility, have at it. Praise God, you're the head of the family. Uh, you see, if, if we're thinking in, 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 in kingdom terms, whether you're head or not, is, is that, whether it's timeless or not, isn't going to be an issue because everything is done for the purpose of humility, of coming under one another, of supporting one another, never lording over one another. And, and you see how this passage is such a great example of of, of God meeting us where we're at to bring us to a, a different place. He enters into the social power structure of the first century where the man has all the power. He meets them where they're at, uses that language, but then he subverts it by infusing it with new meaning. He absolutely redefines what it is to be head. He redefines what it is to submit because it's no longer something that's coerced. It's something that's done freely. And all of this illustrates the beauty of the cross because the cross reveals the God who does this to us and, and the cross reveals the direction that God moves us in once he comes down to our level. In all of our relationships, in our marriages, the goal is to develop a cross-like character, which is to say a humble character, a self-sacrificial character, where we wash the feet of others and sacrifice on behalf of others. Praise God. That is what kingdom marriages are all about. Um, let me end very quickly, very quickly, with two, two quick kingdom principles that address the two main concerns that people have, I find, whatever I give this kind of a message about submission. Number one, you've got to know that in the kingdom, there are no coerced submission. Kingdom submission is never coerced submission. Now, the world's full of coercion. And I say that because a lot of folks, especially women, can, can get nervous when they hear a message like this because you've experienced coerced submission. Maybe you're still in a relationship where even these verses are used against you to coerce you into submission. I'm the man, I get my way. Who are you to talk back to me? Yeah, we're moving. I said we're moving because I want to move. That's all there is to it. Don't be a Jezebel spirit. Don't, don't be complaining. No, obey. And, and so you, you've been intimidated into submission or scared into submission or in some extreme cases beaten into submission. That is not kingdom submission. Jesus defines everything about the kingdom and he submitted not because he was coerced. He did it freely out of love. And all kingdom submission is to be done freely and out of love. It's a voluntary thing. If you're in relationships where you're being intimidated in submission or, or, or beaten in submission or emotionally abused in submission, that is not, that relationship to that degree is not kingdom. And I encourage you to pray and to pray with others about how to wisely put a stop to that. Because it is never God's will for you to be a doormat. 
And that's not, that's not kingdom. That's not godly. That's not loving to you, and it's not loving to the person who you're letting walk on you because you're communicating to them that this is an appropriate way to treat people, and it's not. You're enabling their sin. So for your sake and for that, their sake, that has got to stop. And so pray about ways of putting a stop to that. Don't, we're never called to be, you know, they tried to do that with Jesus. The Pharisees, they tried to scare him into submission, but he pushed back. So also God wants you to push back. Uh, that is not a godly kind of submission. And so this doesn't apply to abusive relationships. You have to, it has to be done out of love and done freely as the church does to, uh, does to Christ. The second thing I'll say is this. In, in kingdom submission, in, in the context of marriage, no one wins. In other words, it's not, if there's a winning, it involves more than one. It's not a win, one person wins and one person loses kind of a thing. No one wins. And I say that for this reason. I have had folks who respond to me by saying, this is a prescription for disaster. Uh, you're you're, you're going to have a headless marriage. Uh, it's like a chicken without a head. It's going to be running around everywhere. How do you make decisions? Uh, how do you uh, deal with tiebreakers? Tiebreakers, you know, I, I, it, It's going to be chaotic. And usually it's men who feel insecure at this point that are objecting like this. See, what I want us to see here, and this is done in all good respect, but that is a pagan way of thinking. Who gets the final vote? Who breaks the tiebreaker? You're asking, who gets the Lord over who? And see, in the kingdom, there's never anyone lording over anyone. Coercing them to follow their will. You know, at one point in the Gospels, Jesus said, you know those pagans, they lord over one another, and the ones who lord over the others are called the benefactors. But, he says, it shall not be so among you. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The one who serves is greater than the one who gets served. And so what Jesus is saying is never in a kingdom relationship is it appropriate to have one lording over another. We shouldn't be asking the question, who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who gets to finally you know, have the deal breaker vote? In the kingdom, you see each other as equal partners in carrying out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And when there's issues, you work them out together as adults. All right? You're adults, you talk it through, you work it through. And that can take time, and that can be messy, but that's what it's all about. And you'll find that if you do it this way, equal partners working things out together, you put the interest of the other and the interest of the relationship before your own. And as you do that, you'll find that the one who's gifted ends up leading. You're now having leadership by giftedness rather than by gender, which is how it should be. The New Testament is totally affirming the idea of leading by giftedness. What are you good at? And that person should lead in that area. Finances, Shelly's the boss, and I'm going to defer to her. No, I'll still ask questions here and there or whatever. It's not like I've done out of a position. She never says, who are you to talk to me about finances? No, but I just, you know, she's better at it, and so I'm going to kind of trust her. Theology, she defers to me. Uh, that's about the only area I can think of, but you know, there is that. Oh, there's a few other areas, I imagine, but you see, that's how it should be. And there's other areas where we're both equally non-gifted or both equally gifted, so you just kind of do it together as a partnership. And you'll find that the process of working through things together like that, it can be such a binding force of love. You're a team. You're supposed to be a team. Not one, you know, bossing over the other, but a team working things together, raising the kids together, uh, working through financial things together. And it can be a very loving, you know, kind of, uh, way of binding you together. One person said, well, that doesn't sound very efficient. Well, in the kingdom, efficiency isn't the goal. Uh, faithfulness is the goal. And this is the faithful way of, of manifesting God's original design for marriage. In a world full of fallen ideals for marriage, where men are lording over the women, we're to model God's ideal. 
And that is what we found at the beginning and what is manifested in, in, in Ephesians 5. A marriage that mirrors the glory of God, the image of God. Two equals who are equally in the image of God working together uh, to carry out His will on earth as it is in heaven. That's the bullseye for marriage. In fact, that's the bullseye for all of our relationships. It's not about shimming up, getting your way, self, seeking selfish ambition. It's about rather coming down this way, washing feet, serving others, sacrificing others, putting on display the character of our Abba Father. Amen. All right? I'm going to, uh, would you stand? I want to close in prayer to seal this. And as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, please uh, feel free to come up here and, and pray with these folks. They would love to minister to you. Uh, if you feel so, let's stop by at the table to s- tell the uh, folks going to Cambodia that you'll be praying for them, find out what they're doing. So Abba Father, as we leave here, I just pray, Lord, that... Uh, we would be people who dare to buck the culture and manifest the beauty of your character in all of our relationships. Humble our hearts, Lord God. Root out any kind of me number one thinking. Uh, free us to be the people who are outrageously loving in our marriages, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our enemies, to put on display the beauty of the character that you revealed on the cross in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and love on the world.